Hi there, my fellow game devs, and welcome to the All Things Unity podcast. My name is Ruben, and I'll be your host. Hi everyone, and welcome back for the 12th episode of the All Things Unity podcast. It's been a while. Again, um, yeah, summer caught up with me, and I was unable to really spend some time on this. Lots of things have been vowing my attention lately, so excuse me for that. And yeah, even in the Netherlands, summer exists, especially this year. It has been a very nice and warm summer up till now, so we make the best of it. But okay, let's get down to business. Last time we started a series about a very cool book called The Pragmatic Programmer by Dave Thomas and Andy Hunt. We only got as far as the first chapter, which taught us all about the pragmatic philosophy. He addressed a couple of important topics, like being a good communicator and keeping uh, keeping a recent portfolio to showcase your skills. And we also talked about how we must take care of our craft and take responsibility for it. We are awesome and everyone will be delighted to work with us. In today's episode, we will take a look at chapter 2 called A Pragmatic Approach. We will dive into code duplication, a topic that is very familiar to us since we have discussed this already to great length. In previous episodes, while discussing clean code and a philosophy of software design, But this book provides a bit more in-depth information about the different causes of duplication, for example. And next, we will dive into the concept of orthogonality. So what does that mean? Well, it means interdependence or decoupled code in a computer science context. This might also sound familiar to you since it's mentioned many times in clean code as well. It's also one of the main topics of A Philosophy of Software Design by Professor Oosterhout. And he claims that it is the most fundamental problem in computer science, uh, which was uh, uh, problem decomposition. And decoupling is at the heart of that problem. So, let's get started with the first section of this chapter, the evils of duplication. This section warns us not to copy-paste knowledge around and keep it in an isolated spot. And as programmers, we document knowledge and specifications, which we call code. However, this knowledge is not stable and it changes very rapidly and often. And requirements might change after a meeting with your clients or with the product owner. And there's also things like regulations. So you might find your code is deprecated or obsolete when the government decides to change some law or laws. That sucks, right? But this all means that we must spend a large part of our time just maintaining code to make sure everything fits today's standards and rules. And Dave Thomas uh, now pointed out uh, something interesting, and that is, and I quote, most people assume that maintenance begins when an application is released. That maintenance means fixing bugs and enhancing features. We think these people are wrong. And, end quote. and I fully agree. I think uh, this is a very old mindset. This comes straight from the, like the waterfall era of working, right? Teams used to work in a very phased manner, um, where the very last stage was the maintenance stage. But we, uh, as we found in like the, the past 11 episodes, complexity creep is a thing. And Professor Oosterhout defined three causes of complexity creep for us uh, where we 
which were uh, change amplification, cognitive load, and unknown unknowns. And if you want to get uh, some more knowledge about these issues, uh, listen to the series about a philosophy of software design. The book is fully covered in the previous episodes, so go have a listen if you haven't. Um, And Uncle Bob also talks about complexity creep. He says that at some point the code will become so complex that no one will dare to change any of it. And at that point the code will start to rot. And Uncle Bob has a nice metaphor for this phenomenon as well. He compares uh, complexity to like a tractor pull. You know, these competitions where people drive like a very strong tractor uh, which needs to pull a weighted cart uh, or a trailer across a field. But the further the tractor comes, the more it starts to slow down from the weight that that the trailer puts on the tractor. Uh, and the one that can pull the trailer the furthest wins the competition. So I think this is indeed very comparable to how software is written sometimes. Sometimes an immense amount of, an immense amount of uh, technical depth is gathered, and as a consequence teams are unable to move and have to start over or re-engineer things completely. That's such a waste of time and money. So I agree with the authors of The Pragmatic Programmer. Maintenance of your application starts as soon as a single or more requirements change. You might see that you need to do maintenance when a customer wants some requirements slightly different, or when the environment changes. And the authors say the following, and I quote, Maintenance is not a discrete activity, but a routine, part of the entire development process, end quote. And that's such a nice statement, and I agree. I think if you have worked in the industry for just a while, Uh, You have encountered a situation where the requirements kept changing right beneath your feet. It sucks, but yeah, sometimes while in a prototyping or exploration phase of a project, this can happen. This is perfectly fine. However, the business or some upper management must understand that this is stressful and they should not expect a perfect product once like a prototype is done. A shit ton of work will probably have to be done to transform that prototype into a production-ready product. And we've talked about prototyping before, and we will get into it uh, later in this episode. But just a quick reminder. A prototype is often a one-time throwaway product. Yes, you try things out, cut major corners just to explore features. But yeah, more on this later. Let's continue with maintenance. So when you do maintenance, you need to change code. If you have the same code copy-pasted around everywhere, you will find you will have to do a lot of maintenance on, well, the same thing, which will burn you down. It will slow you down as well. And it's easy to duplicate knowledge and specification on processes and programs, but you will find yourself in a maintenance nightmare. And now the authors introduce a very well-known acronym in the industry. The DRY principle. And DRY stands for don't repeat yourself. I bet you have heard that before and yes, it comes from the pragmatic programmer. The idea behind DRY is the following, and I quote, Every piece of knowledge must have a single unambiguous authoritative representation within a system, end quote. And that's easier said than done. But the alternative is to have the same thing expressed in two or more places. And if you change one, you will have to change all the others too. That's maintenance hell. 
it's not a question whether you remember to change all the duplicates, but when you forgot to change them, because you will inevitably forget to change one duplicate or more, of course. But yeah, how does this duplication arise? Well, in the book, they cite four reasons. So let's take a look. The first one is called imposed duplication. The authors say that developers might feel they have no choice because the environment or framework requires duplication. I think this can indeed happen sometimes. I can't really come up with an example of this in like a Unity 3D context, but I'm sure there is. Do you know anything? Let me know by sending me an email at podcast at allthingsunity.com. I can, I can think of some examples where you endlessly implement the input or dragging interfaces on different objects and then expose the events in order to notify some listener. But that is not necessarily duplication, but a consequence of using interfaces, which I think is very clean often. Interfaces should be small, right? Remember? But I bet you might be able to think of some something far sinister that does impose duplication in a Unity context. But okay. Um, the second reason why duplication might occur is called inadvertent duplication. Developers don't even notice when they are duplicating information. <laughs> yes, this happens very often, I think. How often uh, have you implemented some loop or link query to search for something? Or maybe needed to check for equality of floats in Unity 3D? The solution in these cases is often to write like a, an, an extension function for this specific type. So for the loop or search algorithm, you write an extension for like the i enumerable of t or like a, an, like a float extension. Um, this way you can battle duplication in a clean manner. But still, you often have to write these things in each simple project. Um, and the third reason for duplication to arise is impatient duplication. <laughs> the reason here is that developers get lazy and duplicate code because it seems easier. And yes, we have also come to this. I certainly have. And you might want to quickly wrap, wrap up some feature like fix a bug. Uh, and the path of least resistance is by duplicating some code and pasting it wherever you need it to be. Uh, this way you can fix a bug, but you have committed the crime of code duplication. And often it will take some effort to find a clean solution to use some other code in order to avoid duplication. You might need to change uh, or take some unwanted dependency, for example. And we have talked about this before as well. Sometimes code looks the same, it does the same, but it belongs to different domains or like bounded contexts. Uh, this might mean that this code is not actually a duplicate because they can evolve differently in different ways because they are in different domains. So also be careful while when taking on some dependency just to fight duplication. And the fourth and final reason why duplication might occur is inter-developer du uh, duplication. And this happens when multiple people or multiple teams duplicate information. And yes, I have seen this too. Teams might need to implement similar features or abstractions and thus they run into similar problems. So they both solve the same thing, thus there is duplication among code. So always communicate properly with teams in order to make sure you have some consensus about the code. 
And this is not as easy as it sounds, of course. But if you are working on the same repository or the same game, you definitely want to share abstractions or just a simple set of extension functions, for example. And if not, you will run into duplication uh, at some point. Um, so yeah, those were the four reasons why duplication can arise in a project. And the next couple of sections in the book dive a bit deeper into all four of these subjects. So yeah, let's take a look. And we started with imposed duplication. Sometimes duplication is imposed by some tool or framework or like a standard or something. And now they give a, give a very nice example and I quote, at a coding level, we often need to have the same information represented in different forms, end quote. And yeah, this is so true. And I can give you a very concrete example of this, which I have been promoting even in a previous episode, which are data transfer objects or DTOs. These DTOs are often just copies of entities created just for communication purposes. We need to use uh, them uh, so they can evolve separately from our business objects. So you might have like a player DTO and a player business object and like a player mono behavior. They all contain like similar data, but they serve a different bounded context. And therefore they are not really duplicates in the sense like, like of architecture. Yet they are duplicates in the sense of the data they might contain. And the next is is also a very interesting point, which will probably spark some discussion or rant on my end. Like the authors say that duplication can arise because of documentation in code. They say, and I quote, programmers I thought to comment their code. Good code has lots of comments. And unfortunately, they have never taught us why code needs comments. Bad code requires comments, end quote. And I, yeah, I guess this flies in the face of Professor Ausserhout, and I'm sure Uncle Bob agrees with Andrew and David. The dry principle tells us to keep uh, the low-level knowledge in the code where it belongs, and reserve the comments for other high-level explanations. And you have to consider that when you update the code, you also need to update the comments. And as Professor Ausserhout also admits in his book, A Philosophy of Software Design, bad comments often repeat, uh, repeat implementation details. Thus, we are duplicating knowledge and not adhering to the dry principle. So I think this is rather interesting. Uncle Bob will tell you to delete most of the comments in your code because they often lie and are misleading. Code should be self-documenting and it's pretty clear that Andrew and David uh, are on the same line as Uncle Bob. I think that Uncle Bob uh, has such a strong opinion about comments because he also read The Pragmatic Programmer back in 1999. And I'm pretty sure even, uh, because if you ask Uncle Bob which uh, books he recommends people to read, this book will always come up in his list. But Professor Ausserhout has a totally different opinion. He loves comments and he says they are fundamental to software design and abstraction. He says, without comments, there cannot be abstraction. And according to Professor Ausserhout, comments can appear in different forms, like interface comments, 
which describe high-level information, but also comments that describe low-level implementation details, like uh, the example of the substring function, where the index is inclusive or exclusive. Uh, a third form is implementation comments, which are like inlined or block comments that describe certain lines of code. And I've talked about this to great lengths, and I'm still of opinion that implementation comments are clutter and should be deleted. But I think this is an interesting take on duplication. If you write a comment that simply repeats code or describe what the code is doing, that is considered duplication as well. And I really like this, not because I think most comments can be removed, but just because it forces you to think better about the comments. This is also what Professor Ausraut teaches us in his book. He says that comments must always be on a different level of abstraction than the code it is commenting. So it's either on a higher level or a lower level of abstraction, but never equal. And also, comments should never focus on the how or what the code is doing, but on the why it is doing it. And even if you write comments this way, you will probably be breaking the dry principle according to the pragmatic programmer. But what do you think about this form of duplication? Would you consider comments as duplicates of code? Please let me know. I'm really curious, and I will argue that they are actually duplicates. And the last cause of imposed duplication the authors describe is language issues. They say that some programming languages are designed to duplicate certain parts. And the prime example they give here is the fact that C and C++, uh, you have to make those header files, right? And implementation files. So the header files define the interface the implementation needs to adhere to. This feels a bit like duplication indeed. Now I think a bit. And, and on the other hand, I have always liked to have these header files. They can provide you with a quick view of what a class is doing. And if you need some more information, you can take the implementation and start reading. But in some sense, I guess Andrew and David are right. So these were the four causes of imposed duplication. Let's continue with another form of duplication, which was inadvertent duplication. An inadvertent duplication can be difficult to spot uh, and solve. Developers sometimes do not realize they are actually duplicating code. The examples in the book goes as follows. Imagine you created software for a delivery system. Some driver calls in sick and now you need to change the state of some driver class. However, you also need to change the state of some truck class or maybe the delivery route class or both maybe. I guess maybe both. So there's duplication here. However, this kind of duplication is a mere reference to some driver ID or something. I hope so, at least. Still, there's, there is duplication. So in many cases like this, you create some aggregate object that combines a driver, a truck, and a delivery route into some object that references all of them. This way you can circumvent duplication issues. I think this is the cleanest solution. Um, and another cause of inadvertent duplication might also be like design issues like having a class called line with three properties, start, end, and length. Length should be a get-only property or a function that calculates the length on the spot, because you can always calculate the length based on start and end. 
It's little things like this uh, that can make your code much more usable or simplistic. And simplicity should be high on your agenda anyway. And next, we take uh, a bit of a deeper dive into impatient duplication. This is the kind of duplication where you might introduce, uh, yeah, when you're on like a tight schedule. So instead of doing things nicely and creating the correct abstractions, etc., you throw all your disciplines out of the window and start copy-pasting things around to get things to work. This is not a good thing. You should stick with your disciplines as long as you can and as much as you can. We've talked about this in previous episodes as well. Sometimes, just to make a deadline or please a client or manager, you might hack something in, but after releasing, you, will bo you go back immediately and fix it to properly limit the damage. This is not efficient, no, but business goals are important too, and sometimes we need to compromise. But you should always go back, uh, back and fix it and not build up that technical depth. And the authors also give a nice quote here, uh, saying, shortcuts make long delays. <laughs> yeah, you've all heard that. And how true is that in software? I think if you have taken some shortcuts in your development adventures, you know that, yeah, the delay is very large uh, compared to the shortcut you had in the past. And as a simple example I can give uh, in a Unity 3D sense, which is not even uh, a, a programming or development example, but still. Imagine you're designing levels for your game. You make lots of props, trees, foliage, and buildings, and characters, and all kinds of stuff. But you have not properly created nested prefab structures for these prefabs. And thus, you need to manually change a lot of assets scattered throughout many scenes. I have made this mistake for sure. If you have set up prefabs with a nested structure from the beginning, you could really easily swap things out. And as the authors also very thoughtfully say in the book, and I quote, impatient duplication is an easy form to detect and handle, but it takes discipline and willingness to spend time up front to save pain later. And this is so true, and I hope it makes sense to you as well. And the last form of duplication we will discuss is inter-developer duplication. I think this kind of duplication will... Yeah, we all have it and we will all run into it eventually. This is the kind of duplication that can arise when multiple teams work on shared projects or logic or game data and that's copied everywhere. I can give you a very simple example that I encounter very often. When you develop some 3D, uh, Unity 3D project that needs to talk to some backend servers, you will have the same DTO objects on both the Unity 3E side and on the backend side. This is inadversable, since communication must go through the same data structures. Now you could create some like shared DLL that contains these DTOs, and as a matter of fact, I've tried this approach, but it works less lightly, nicely as you might expect. These DLLs might get out of date and you need to update them. You need to update the DTOs individually as well. But yeah, I just found that keeping the DLL up to date uh, takes more effort since it wasn't really automated on our end. Maybe I could use another approach to put these DTOs in like a shared project and, and yeah, use that uh, in the backend and 
yeah, use the package manager in Unity to pull all these updates in. Updates, uh, yeah, like they get the default way of working because you regularly check the package manager for updates. I hope I do at least. You should as well. Um, but to avoid inter-developer duplication, you really need proper communication and quick communication channels. And I think nowadays communication is done quickly over Slack or Discord or something similar. And in the book, they talk about news groups. <laughs> this dates the book a little, I guess. Um, but also, uh, design decisions and architecture of a game should be described somewhere too. You won't do that in Slack, of course. Um, you need some proper way of documentation for all of that stuff. So use something like a wiki, or as we do at work, at Lashen Confluence. Not that I particularly like Confluence in that sense, but yeah, we use that tool. I need something or somewhere to store this kind of information. I'm also a bit unaware of like better tooling for storing this kind of documentation. So if you know something better, let me know. Um, but that's enough about duplication. I think it's pretty clear that duplication is, well, not a great thing. The thing I like the most is that comments that are on the same level of abstraction of the code are considered duplicates as well. I never really thought about it this way, but it makes total sense. I really like that because it's yet another argument that comments should be useful or uh, if you decide to write them. But yeah. All right, let's continue with a new section which describes the concept of orthogonality. So what does that mean again? It's one of these words that's always thrown around in computer science lectures or literature. And well, orthogonality in a computer science context means a kind of interdependence or decoupling. Two or more things are orthogonal when changes in one do not trigger changes in the other. So, for example, in a well-designed game, changes to your gameplay should do not trigger changes to your web requests or database. And the same goes for UI. When you change the user interface, that won't trigger changes in your gameplay codes. So be wary with using mono behaviors as like domain-level objects. So have you worked in a non-orthogonal system? Uh, if you have worked in IT for a while, you probably have. Uh, you change something here and something else totally unrelated explodes. Yes, this sounds so familiar to me. <laughs> so what are the benefits of orthogonality? Well, first of all, they are less complex than non-orthogonal systems since orthogonality eliminates the efforts between unrelated things. And a nice quote here from the book says the following, and I quote, in a non-orthogonal system, so a system which is highly interdependent, there is no such thing as a local fix. But for a bug, for example, let that sink in for a minute, because this is really this is a really important concept in computer science. So, having explained this, you probably need uh, see how orthogonal systems have many benefits. But let's take a look at what these benefits are and discuss them. So, first of all, when a system is orthogonal, you will gain some productivity. Changes you do to a system, whether it's a bug fix uh, or a feature, uh, well, they are localized. 
This means uh, that not just development time is reduced, but also testing and maybe even compiling and deployment. And another reason why your productivity might increase is that since changes are localized in a specific area, you can get away with only a small change instead of a large change in many files in case of a non-orthogonal system. Orthogonal systems also promote and allow for reuse of components. If components have well-defined responsibilities and are loosely coupled, you can reuse them in different contexts as well. This is very nice and also very useful. It's, it's a really important concept in the context of computer science and Professor Austerhout also talks about this in his book, A Philosophy of Software Design. We discussed this already, so go back to the previous uh, episodes if you want to hear a deep dive on this stuff. And a orthogonal system will also bring the benefit of reducing risk in software development. But how, you might ask? Well, since orthogonal systems are loosely coupled, and we have talked about that just a minute, changes are localized to certain parts of the code or components, and bugs or faults are as well. And in the book, the authors have something funny to say about this, and I'll quote that directly. And I quote, If a module is sick, it is less likely to spread the symptoms around to the rest of the system. It is also easier to slice it out and transplant into uh, something in new and healthy, end quote. Isn't that a funny analogy? And it's totally right. If bugs and faults are localized in some components, you can really quickly make a fix for them uh, in a single spot or simply just replace the entire component with something that does work. And I will give you guys and gals an example uh, of something we ran into while developing our Unity application just a couple of months ago. So for an app we are developing, we needed some form of efficient data storage. So we set out and implemented like a local uh, SQLite database uh, that we created by the client on uh, like a Windows or Mac, or Android and iOS devices. This all worked perfectly fine until our database started to grow and queries started to take a long time. Also considering the fact that we do some multi-threading, we ran into issues with uh, well, transactions. And all the code for the database access is isolated in dedicated components which simply well, expose functions that return domain level objects. So no SQL tables uh, or columns or rows and crap were leaked to the outside. Remember Professor Austerhout's concepts of information hiding and leakage here, by the way. But the database was growing large and queries started to take a long time. And we solved this issue by, well, simply ripping out the entire database and replacing it with a NoSQL uh, no database. We chose a database called LightDB, which is a document uh, database similar to like Mongo. This means we did not have to uh, do complicated joins, etc. Since now we could just simply dump uh, like a JSON file in there, which kept all the references intact. And for us, for our solution, this was very nice. And it might not be for you. For example, the database just kept local storage of things that were available uh, from our backend anyway. So deleting it did not really impact production clients or customers. But if, it, uh, if there was other data stored in there that was only used locally, there might have been some consequences. Uh, 
but we were in this unique uh, unique position to just replace the thing altogether. And I think this is a very nice example of how orthogonality helps creating flexible systems. We did not want to dive into boring SQLite of like SQL query optimizations and just simply rip the entire database out and replaced it. This is how orthogonal systems are supposed to work. Um, this also makes your systems less fragile. Again, since functionality, including bugs and faults, are localized and you can simply make a change in a local area to fix things. Another benefit of this is that these loosely coupled components are easily tested. I know it was something like a broken record, uh, but since things are loosely coupled, you can easily mock things out and inject uh, testable dependencies or mocks into your orthogonal system. As we already have discussed to great length in this podcast, testing is of great importance to software design and development. Testing allows you to go faster, not slower, as the common belief still is. Other benefits of orthogonal systems are related to project teams. Uh, I think that some of you might have experienced this, so let me explain. If you work in some company with multiple project or product teams, you might have noticed that some teams are able to create features quickly while other teams are struggling to get like out of each other's ways. This is an orthogonality issue. I'll quote the book since they explain it really nicely. And I quote, when teams are organized with lots of overlap, members are confused about responsibilities. Every change needs a meeting of the entire team because any one of them might be affected, end quote. This is also what we call Conway's law. The structure of software design will reflect the organizational structure. So if you work in a large company, it is very useful to split teams according to known components. I will remind you the, that components might be total like vertical slices, you know, some front end, business logic, and the database. Um, Jeff Bezos uh, from Amazon, famous memo, said that teams should be no larger than one you can feed with two pizzas. And such a team maintains the front end code, the business logic, and the database. So this is Conway's law at work. Um, this is also uh, another example of how a massively distributed company, like an organization and culture, reflects the software design and architecture. So yeah, Conway's Law. I recently finished the book uh, I was talking about in the previous episode called Modern Software Development by Dave Farley. I fondly remember a quote from that book about microservices, and it goes something like this, so I'll paraphrase. Microservices are for scaling the organization, not the system. You could achieve similar scalability with other architectures. But yeah, let's get back to this book. I don't want to drift off too far. So next up, uh, they talk about some implications of orthogonal systems. However, I think we have discussed this already. They talk about how orthogonal systems are created by organizing decoupled components in some modular way. This feels like common sense to me, but I think that uh, it is still often a problem in Unity 3D. 
Ask yourself how much business logic do you actually write in classes that inherit from like mono behavior or a, a UI element. I bet it's a lot. So changing your UI, i.e. game objects or components, impacts your business logic. This is not an this is a non-orthogonal system, so it's not orthogonal. People often tell me like Ruben, stop whining. We are U we are Unity 3D devs, and we chose Unity 3D for a reason, and thus we accept this dependency on Unity 3D. But that's not the point. The point is that you are mixing responsibilities of UI and business code. If your code breaks just because you decide to uh, like organize your prefab slightly different, that's bad. Note that I said your code and not your game because changing the structure of prefabs might definitely break your game without breaking your code. Uh, and likely if you add like uh, colliders on things you did not have before, uh, that could break your game, not your code per se. So to battle non-orthogonality, the authors provide us with some tips. First of all, keep your code decoupled. Well, duh. Um, write independent modular components that do not depend on other components when they don't have to. Make sure these components don't leak information and hide their internals. And as Uncle Bob and Professor Arsraud also said, don't expose the innards of a module through its public interface. Always make sure, uh, make, like use DTO objects and just make sure those DTO objects don't impact your performance. If you're generating like hundreds, if not thousands of DTOs and like an update loops uh, of your components, that will slow down your game. So search for a different solution in that case. And the authors specifically mentioned the law of Demeter again. Remember that law? It's the law that says you should only talk to your direct references and not to strangers. Like references of references. So never call player.weapon.fire but make like a function called player.attack or something, which attacks with the selected weapon, whatever that might be. Um, this way you encapsulate the behavior you adhere to uh, and adhere to the law of the meter. Um, and the next tip David and Andrew gave is that you should avoid global data. Every time your code references global data, you couple your code to it and share that data. This includes your singletons as well, by the way. This is exactly why there's so much hate against singletons. Sharing this data can be a really big problem once you start to add multi-threading into the mix or when you need to split things up into like uh, DLL or packages. And they mention uh, singletons specifically in the book as well with the following warning. Uh, and I quote, be careful with singletons. They can also lead to a necessary linkage, end quote. And remember, this book is from the 1999, so singletons being a cause of problems has been uh, known for a very long time. I don't want to say never use them. They can be very, very useful, but use them with caution, at least. And the third and last tip they give in regard to uh, maintain orthogonality of your system is to avoid similar functions. 
Yeah, we already talked about uh, about this, uh, about du code duplication and the drive principle. I just want to repeat it quickly that duplicated code is often a, sim uh, a symptom of structural problems and you should refactor it when you see it. So, okay, the last subsections related to orth orthogonality mentioned testing and documentation. And we've already talked about how orthogonal systems are easier to test since you can test components in isolation and we are able to inject testable dependencies like mocks, as well as duplication and the drive principle. And I won't uh, explain orthogonality in testing again since we already did. And if you want some more information about that, rewind the episode for a couple of minutes uh, or listen to previous episodes that explain uh, testing in a clean code or philosophy of software design. Uh, we've talked extensively about this topic. So, then about documentation. Uh, they did not mention it until now, but it seems kind of obvious, uh, doesn't it? If you have an orthogonal system, you will uh, have well-defined components that are modular. It seems pretty straightforward that writing documentations for these components is fairly easy, quote-unquote, since you can focus on one topic. You don't need to talk about dependencies or interdependencies much, because they don't exist, right? Uh, there might be some publicly exposed interfaces uh, other components should inherit, but these will not impact the documentation of the component you're describing. So if you find yourself documenting all kinds of references or dependencies, that could be a sign of a non-orthogonal system. That's a really nice observation, I think. But yeah, I think that's enough for today. Uh, we are not done yet with this chapter, uh, but we are running out of time for this episode. It has been fun to revisit these topics, and we will continue chapter 2 in the next episode, so don't worry. The topics of reversibility, traceability, domain languages, and estimation are for next time. And I really can't wait to revisit the topic of estimation again. It's such a difficult part of our job that how However many times you might read advice people give to do better estimations, you always learn something new. But alright, I hope you enjoyed the first half of chapter 2 of The Pragmatic Programmer. So let me know what you think about this book so far by sending me an email at podcast at allthingsunity.com. And also, don't forget to leave me a review on your favorite podcasting platform. So Go to the star on the right, and that will do the trick. Um, I will try to do my absolute best to release episodes more frequently, but my schedule has not permitted me to do so. But thank you for listening again, and yeah, see you next time. And remember, with Unity, we can do great things. Game over. Game over.